It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. After years where prices barely seem to rise and interest rates remain stubbornly low, the last two years have seen inflation come roaring back. Combined with union strife and an energy crisis, it's felt like we've been living through the 1970s all over again. What better time then for an economist to publish a handy explainer on just what inflation is, where it comes from and why central banks have so often failed to deal with it. Stephen D. King is an economist and writer who's a senior advisor at HSBC and the author of four books, including his latest, We Need to Talk About Inflation, 14 Urgent Lessons from the Last 2,000 Years. Stephen and I sat down at CapEx Towers to talk through the history of inflation and what the UK might have in store in the years to come. Stephen, thank you very much indeed for being with us on the CapEx podcast. Your new book, We Need to Talk About Inflation, is out late this month. Just for our listeners' benefit, who are you and what do you do? Uh, Stephen King, I'm an economist and I write books and columns for newspapers and um, I think about economics quite a lot. The title is We Need to Talk About Inflation, I guess. Since you put pen to paper, we've talked about little else in in, uh, political terms. Was this a book you've had in the offing for a long time, or was it one that was inspired by the last couple of years? Uh, I would say the last couple of years. So I think many of us, many economists, were much more in the sort of deflation or disinflation camp, sense that there was a danger that prices might fall rather than rise, that perhaps we were heading towards a sort of Japanification of the Western world, you know, high debts, aging populations, all these kinds of things. But the sort of thing that shifted for me was, I guess, at the beginning of 2021, um, when we started to see some inflationary upside surprises coming through, that for all the talk about you know, the impact of the pandemic as one that's going to kill off demand and lower prices, Suddenly, at the beginning of 2021, you were seeing upside price pressures coming through initially in the US, but within the space of a month or two, also in Europe and the UK. Now, this I thought was pretty odd. It suggested that there was something peculiar going on. I was also aware that there were some very strange financial things that had happened in 2020. Most obviously, that although no one was looking at it, money supply growth had picked up very, very rapidly in the US in particular, but it was also growing at the rate of knots in both Europe and the UK. 
And I also began to wonder whether the excuses for why price pressures were coming through were excuses that really stacked up. And you may recall that at the beginning of 2021, the explanation for the upside surprises and inflation was all to do with semiconductor prices, the prices of secondhand cars, all those kinds of things. But as that year progressed, you were seeing you know, a lot more price pressures coming through, not just in those very, very specific areas. You might blame on supply shortages of one kind or another. But as the year progressed uh, through all sorts of goods, all sorts of services, and eventually also signs of price pressures in the labor market. So wages are beginning to accelerate in some cases. This struck me as being a much broader inflation story than uh, people had imagined. So that was really the beginnings of the process of thinking about inflation. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought that we're in a very strange position whereby the reality of rising inflation was very much there. Particularly, I would say, amongst the central banking community, there was an outright denial that inflation could possibly be there. So there's a kind of cognitive dissonance between what seemed to be happening and uh, what the central banks were telling us was happening. <laughs> they were very different. So we'll talk about the kind of hubris and the, and the blame game later on in the interview. But just to get back to a kind of broad question, what exactly are we talking about when we use this term inflation? Is it just about prices going up from one week to the next? Or is there something broader than that? It's definitely broader than that. So cost of living crisis is a situation where, let's say, prices rise relative to wages or relative to people's incomes. Inflation really is a story whereby prices and wages, in fact, virtually everything is rising at the same time. So you could redefine inflation not so much as the sort of story of rising prices, but actually the falling value of the cash in your pocket, that money loses value over a period of time. Actually, what's extraordinary about the last 100 years or so is that this has been the longest sustained period of monetary destruction, if you like, through inflation that we've really witnessed. If you look at the Bank of England's data, which goes back over a thousand years of, of inflation measured accurately or otherwise, what you find is that from 1900 through to the year 2000, uh, a pound in your pocket 100 years later was only worth two pence, which shows the sort of long-term destructive nature of inflation. Now, of course, if you'd invested in, say, the stock market or whatever, you might be absolutely fine. But for many people, particularly poorer people, they haven't got access to the stock market. They haven't got access to clever financial opportunities. So you know, if they're relying purely on the savings in their bank account, typically aren't necessarily earning that much in the way of interest, then the chances are that inflation is very, very destructive for them. And yeah, how satisfied are you with the, or should we be with the way that inflation itself is actually calculated. It's basically a kind of basket of goods that the Office of National Statistics puts together. Yes. I mean, how much is that telling us? Because presumably every individual sort of has their own rate of inflation depending on their own consumption habits. They do. And of course, uh, you're talking about a kind of every man or every woman who's the person that the ONS is trying to capture in its inflation measures. Uh, each person's going to have a very different experience depending on the specific basket of goods and services that they're purchasing. Also, it's worth noting, of course, that in each case, the ONS is trying to seize upon a particular item that's supposed to be representative of items more generally. So if you think, well, if you buy an apple from the supermarket, is it the Cox's Orange Pippin? Is it a Golden Delicious? An apple, which is part of their economy package of apples. You know, there's a whole range of different things. But the argument I, or the example I use actually in the book is of uh, tools for a toolkit. Uh, these are effectively proxied by the price of a screwdriver, but it doesn't tell you which size a screwdriver is being used. And moreover, of course, tools include a whole bunch of things that are not screwdrivers. So there is an imprecision in terms of how inflation is measured. 
And there's also things missing from inflation that some people might argue should be there. For example, you know, house price inflation, stock market inflation, they are in one sense uh, measures of sometimes you know, financial or monetary excess, but they don't get themselves captured in the standard inflation measures. It feels like CPIH, which does include housing, has been relatively late to come along in terms of the kind of discourse around inflation. How useful is a housing-free inflation measure if 50%, if you live in London, say, 50% of your outgoings might be rent or mortgage? Well, it's tricky because if, if, for example, you have mortgages as part of the inflation measure, which in fact was standard with RPI in the old days, uh, what the Treasury, which was in charge of monetary policy at the time would find is that they raise interest rates. And of course, the initial impact is to raise inflation rather than lower inflation because you're paying more in the way of mortgage interest payments than you were previously, which sounds a bit odd because the idea is you're raising interest rates to get inflation down. But the first thing that happens is inflation goes up. So there's a good reason in one sense for excluding that kind of cost from inflation measures, because you're trying to come up with a measure of inflation, which in one sense should not be correlated positively with the change in direction of monetary policy. Uh, so that's one reason why I think we have this. So, so I think it's important to, in one sense, to emphasize that you're trying to measure inflation as a way of gauging the loss in value of money, rather than necessarily measuring inflation purely as a measure of the cost of living at any particular point in time. Mm-hmm. So in terms of controlling inflation, which is the big kind of political issue at the moment, and it has proven in the past. You mentioned the 1970s a lot in this book for obvious reasons, which is the, the comparator period, not just because of inflation, but you know, industrial strife, high oil prices, which is obviously linked to... Yep. There's lots of kind of quite neat parallels. Looking at the broader span of history, have there been times in the past as well where we've had long flat periods with very little inflation? Is this a feature that we have kind of it peaks and troughs and lulls? And- so the first thing to note is that a lot of the inflation we saw before the 20th century was typically offset by periods of deflation of falling prices. So the overall price level tends to be relatively stable over a very long period of time. And one reason for that is that money prior to the 1930s was mostly tied in value to precious metal, whether that be gold or silver or some mixture of the two. And that link with gold and silver typically meant that there was a limit to how much fake money or paper money or whatever you want to call it could be created. Um, That all changes in the 1930s, really, when governments and central banks come off the gold standard, partly as a consequence of the Great Depression. Thereafter, there is, I think, an understandable unwillingness to go back onto the gold standard, because when you've got rapid economic growth and gold is not really rising in quantity that quickly, the danger is you've got a persistent period of deflation, as in fact we saw in the late 19th century. And the problem with persistent periods of deflation is that if you happen to be a debtor, if you borrowed from somebody else during a period of deflation, the risk is that your debts in in real terms just continuously rise because prices and wages are falling, and yet the nominal amount you borrowed is not changing. You saw actually in the late 19th century, notably in the US, a kind of redistribution of income effectively away from might loosely describe as southern debtors to northern creditors. And for many, it was a particularly painful experience. So although the aggregate story was one of you know, rapid economic growth, the distributional consequences of living through deflation were themselves pretty awkward. But generally speaking, you could say that you have periods of deflation, periods of inflation, they offset each other. Now, there are one or two exceptions. And in the book, I note a few. So the first one is the Roman Empire between 0 AD and 300 AD. And this is where there's a significant monetary link. Uh, Various Roman emperors were trying to fend off 
forces attacking the Roman Empire from all sides, they had to find a way of paying ever larger numbers of soldiers to protect them. And what they basically did was to debase the coinage. Silver coins gradually over time had less and less silver in them, and therefore they became less and less valuable. So if you were unlucky enough to have a, a stash of, or being paid rather in silver coins, and you'd find that your real pay was descending over a period of time. So that's a good example of early inflation, really. You have the price revolution of the 16th century, which was largely a consequence of the Spanish heading off to Latin America and um, finding an awful lot of silver, which they shipped back to Europe. This was very good news in the short term for the Spanish, because of course, they could live off effectively exchanging this extra silver for goods and so on produced in other parts of Europe. But it eventually meant, of course, that because you're adding more and more silver supplies to a given quantity of, of activity, prices themselves rose, which again, you know, happened quite swiftly during the 16th century. And then the other periods of inflation are mostly associated with wartime. And the reason for that is that wars are costly. And often governments are not that keen to be raising taxes heavily or cutting spending heavily during wartime. So a good way of funding a war effectively is to have inflation because the inflation reduces the real spending power of those with cash savings. And if you go back to, say, the American Civil War in the 1860s, or the Napoleonic Wars earlier, or later, the First World War, or the Second World War, they're all associated with periods of, of sustained inflation. Yeah, I mean, we've come used to in, in the UK since 1997, a whole generation has basically grown up with an independent central bank whose job it is, or it has been for some years to keep inflation to this target of 2%. I just want to ask two things. One is, what are the issues in terms of the independence of the bank? How independent can a central bank really be, given the what you call the Elizabeth Burton-Richard Taylor relationship between monetary and fiscal yes. policy? I will leave people to read the book to find out about that. <laughs> and also this, uh, how valuable that target is in terms of it might feel to the outside observer like slightly arbitrary that we've just picked 2% and made that yes. the inflation target. And it seems to be one that lots of central banks have picked. Well, it is partly arbitrary. Let's face it, that when the New Zealanders, who are the first people to adopt inflation targeting, picked a 2% number, it's because inflation at that time was around about 2%. And it's probably fair to say that most central banks picked 2% or thereabouts because they didn't want to be accused either of deliberately going out of the way to raise inflation from where it was at the time or lower inflation from where it was at the time to 2% was a relatively you know, non-controversial number to come up with. It doesn't mean to say it's the right number, but it was non-controversial at the time. As far as independence is concerned, I, I think it is worth stressing that a lot of central banks became independent when inflation was already under control. So their job, once they became independent, was effectively to in one sense, preserve the status quo to say, look, we've got inflation at 2% or thereabouts. We'll endeavor at all times to be able to effectively either be close to 2% or find reasons for why we're not at 2% currently, but where we hope to return to 2% you know, relatively speedily. So for example, if you have a, an oil price shock or an energy price shock, you might find that you temporarily move away from the 2%. But so long as, as a central bank, you're totally credible and people believe what you're doing, then there's every chance that perhaps you'll go back to 2% thereafter. And that was certainly the kind of view that people took. Problem with it, I think, is that, first of all, there was a very useful tailwind to keep inflation low for a long period of time. And this was what was loosely described by many people as the great moderation. And the great moderation was really a story about the idea that growth would be relatively stable at a reasonable rate, but inflation would be low and stable, not volatile in the way it had been in the past. 
What year are we talking about from the sort of early 90s onwards? Or? Um, well, I, I think the phrase begins to be uh, in circulation really in the 2000s. So this is before the global financial crisis, but after, say, the dot-com bubble had burst. It was very useful for central bankers themselves because they, they could say, well, look, we've had independence in terms of monetary policy, and look at the result. We've got this great moderation. Problem with it is that I would argue, and many others would argue, that the great moderation was less to do with the collective wisdom of central bankers and more to do with a series of fortunate external events, based obviously the incorporation of particularly the Chinese labor supply, but probably also the Indian labor supply and other labor supplies into the world economy. And this gave you a sort of persistent disinflationary or deflationary trend in the Western developed world, so effectively cheaper imported goods, which other things being equal would have led to inflationary undershoots. Now, because central banks didn't want those inflationary undershoots because they were fearful of deflation, often you'd find that the central bank would try to offset the disinflationary consequences of cheaper imported goods uh, with an attempt to stimulate activity at home. So lower interest rates than might otherwise be the case, more in the way of service sector activity, more in the way of service sector inflation. And actually also, I would suggest more in the way of asset price bubbles, which of course was a big problem in the 1990s and in the 2000s. Now, more recently, uh, particularly over the last two or three years when inflation has been on the rise, we've encountered a new problem, really, which is that central bankers convinced themselves that they were masters and mistresses of the universe, that they could absolutely control inflation, and what they were doing was entirely credible. So when inflation starts to surprise on the upside, they've got one of two choices. The first choice is to say, it must all be to do with external shocks, because how could we possibly have delivered this outcome? And the other choice is to say, actually, we got it wrong. We made some mistakes, and we're now in the business of rectifying those mistakes. And those mistakes might include failure to observe that there was a tremendous monetary expansion, maybe mistakes associated with the misjudgment of the supply side performance of economies, not just because of the pandemic, because of deglobalization in earlier years. But uh, frankly, you know, most central bankers, of course, are, well, all central bankers are human beings as well. And human beings don't tend to like to admit to error. And so what we have in one sense is a description of the world, which is remarkably similar to what happened in the early 1970s. Oh, it's just a series of moments of bad luck, nothing to do with us. And we're left with a story whereby inflation is significantly higher than anyone expected for a given level of economic activity. Do you have any sympathy with central bankers in the sense that were they to come out and say, yeah, we got it all wrong, they kind of risk undermining confidence in the whole underwiring of our financial system. So they're slightly damned if they do and damned if they don't. I think it's difficult. And I think it's difficult partly because if they say they got it wrong, then people will say, well, how could you have been so stupid? Or maybe you should be more politically accountable in the future because we can't trust you anymore. But on the other hand, if they don't admit that they got it wrong, and let's imagine that inflation persists and is around in a sort of underlying sense for quite some time, then at some point, people are going to say, well, what's happened? You know, why is it that inflation is so persistent? Why is it that you've been unable to hit your 2% target? And you can blame external shocks up to a point. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to say that the pandemic had an impact. It's perfectly reasonable to say that Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the impact it had on energy and food prices has had an impact. But the latter of those two excuses is a bit too much ex post, if you like, because as I said at the opening of this discussion, the reality is that inflation in, in the West started surprising the upside in early 2021, which is a year before Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So it's difficult to argue that that was the result of you know, the energy price shock that came through thereafter. 
I'd also note that if you go back to the 1970s, even now, then the sort of common mythology about the 1970s is that inflation was caused by the energy price shocks. But that's just not true. I mean, if you look at the US in particular, inflation was surprising on the upside in 1969, 1970, 71, 72. So, you know, three or four years before the first of the oil shocks. And the upside surprised again in the late 1970s before the Iranian Revolution. So, Effectively, the oil shocks in the 1970s were the icing on an inflationary cake. They were not the cause of the inflation. And I fear at the moment that there is a danger that if you blame everything on external shocks, you're, if every country does the same, and there's a tendency of doing that currently, you're beginning to argue that the external shock must come from Venus, Mars, or Jupiter, which I don't think is what they are really believing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that comes across very clearly in your book is that this is a very multifaceted phenomenon. One thing I wonder is what your view as an economist is on the state of your profession, as it were, because you talk about economists relying on slightly unreliable diagnostic tools. For example, the output gap is one that you mentioned. Do you think that that's still the case that the economics profession is projecting a certainty that isn't there in the real world or needs to be a bit more humble about what they can and can't say about the future? There is an oddity, I think, in the economics profession, which is that a lot of economists are not short of intellectual confidence, even though they're working in an area where humility might be a useful (laughs) attribute. The risk, for example, with relying on models is that typically the models are constructed over a period of time. And they're typically constructed over a period of time, which is relatively short and doesn't allow for what we describe as the important structural changes that happen in an economy. If you've lived through you know, 20 or 30 years of low and stable inflation, the models you're going to construct will almost certainly project low and stable inflation into the future. What I think is missing in a lot of economic discourse is a sense of or sufficiency of knowledge of economic history. History doesn't repeat itself, but you can get very, very important lessons from history, particularly in sort of humbleness and humility to recognize that we're not masters of the universe. We can't control and predict things in any level of precision. I mean, one would have thought you'd have learned that from the global financial crisis, which was you know, a vast, vast shock. But I think in one sense, what happened from the global financial crisis was taking the wrong lesson, which was to say, we've had this crisis. It looks like Japan 30 years ago or so. We know that Japan then suffered from 20, 30 years of disinflation and deflation, falling prices and zero interest rates and so on. We're about to go through the same thing. And it's fair to say that you know, a lot of central banks put all their chips on red and deflationary red and basically said, look, this is the battle we've got to fight. What I think that meant was that when inflationary pressures returned, there was almost an absence of the intellectual imagination to accept that this could be happening. So it was almost like a sense of denial. We're in a deflationary world. Inflation's just not possible. And when it does happen, again, I think it's important to recognize sometimes that that history rather than models can be a more effective friend in these circumstances. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Yeah, speaking about history and the way that the global economy has changed, I mean, you've written another book about which the subtitle is The End of Globalization. What is the interaction, in your view, between inflation and globalization? Looking at it from a purely kind of layman's outside perspective, you would think that if there were multiple places producing goods in different markets, that it would offset inflation because it might be expensive to produce in one country, but less so in the other if you have lots of different yeah. potential suppliers. I mean, what's going on there? So one way to think about this is that globalization, if it's done well, if it leads to a greater efficiency in the allocation of capital, which is what you're really aiming at, globalization should mean that you end up with efficiency gains. So for any given input, you can produce more outputs, or put it another way, for any given cost of inputs, you can produce cheaper outputs than would otherwise be the case, or maybe you can find cheaper inputs. But overall, what you should end up doing is producing more at a lower cost than was the case previously. If you think of borders and barriers as things that get in the way of the efficiency with which resources are allocated, then the removal of borders and barriers should lead to lower levels of cost than would otherwise be the case. In any given world, um, if that's happening, you might expect to see, for a period, lower inflation than would otherwise have been the case. If it goes into reverse and you discover that you're rebuilding borders and barriers, you then are reincorporating inefficiencies into the allocation of capital. You might also think about this in terms of reshoring and nearshoring, the idea of bringing production back home or closer to home to avoid some of the sort of supply vulnerabilities that were revealed during the pandemic, for example. And all these things are costly. So it's a bit like discovery, you've, you've got a house, but now you've got to pay insurance on the house. It's that kind of thing. And in those circumstances, you may find that your costs are rising for any given economic ambition. In the first of the worlds where globalization is continuing to advance, you may find that output is continuously rising faster than you had expected for any given rate of inflation. In the second of the worlds, you may find that for any given level of output, inflation is higher than you would have anticipated in the first of those two worlds. So for a while, at least, you're likely to find that inflation is a stickier and more awkward problem than was the case in the globalized world. And yeah, do you have a view, notwithstanding the points about humility, do you have a view about the stickiness of inflation at the moment? Because it's quite noticeable that one of the prime minister's five kind of targets yeah. is to halve inflation. Do you think he's on a high and sort of slightly made a rod for his own back there? 
It's going to be relatively easy through the rest of 2023 to bring headline inflation down because energy prices have already fallen a long way. So as energy prices are a big part of the inflationary process, then inflation will fall. That part is easy. The bigger problem is the extent to which the decline in so-called headline inflation feeds through into core inflation, so the underlying measure of inflation that is less distorted by the vagaries of energy and food prices from one year to the next. And we know that, for example, you know, wages in the UK have accelerated quite strongly, particularly in the private sector over the last few months. We know that there are public sector strikes going on to a considerable degree, also in the private sector as well, to a certain degree. And all these things might suggest that for any given reduction in headline inflation, the persistence of core inflation becomes a bigger problem. I'd also note that the Prime Minister is talking about halving inflation from 10. Well, it still leaves you at 5. And 5 is still significantly higher than the inflation target of 2. So it's actually not very ambitious. I mean, I think it'll get there quite happily. The bigger issue, perhaps, is what happens in 2024 and beyond. And again, there's an echo from the past here, which is that if you looked at inflation in the 1970s, when it came down from its peak in 74 or 75, drifted lower in 76 and 77, but never got down to what you might in any way regard as price stability because it went back up again. The same is also true of the US. In fact, I was looking at um, some of the comments from Arthur Burns, who was the chair of the Fed in the 1970s, and many people blame him for the inflation of the 1970s. But the speech he gave after he'd stepped down from the Federal Reserve, and he was trying to explain why it was so difficult to control the inflation in the 1970s. And one of the things he said was that, well, we knew what to do about inflation. It was just a case of raising interest rates. But we found two things. The first was that raising interest rates to levels consistent with defeating inflation was pretty poisonous for unemployment and for economic activity. And there was no political appetite for those kinds of things to happen. So in that sense, we sort of tolerated more inflation than we should have done. And the second thing he said was that whenever inflation started to fall, we didn't wait for it to get down to low levels. We cut rates relatively swiftly because we wanted to show that we were in favor of supporting economic growth. And the problem with cutting rates too swiftly was effectively that you ended up with persistence of inflation that you didn't really want. And interestingly, when Volcker comes in at the end of the 70s, later on, he effectively says, look, the reason why I got away with getting rid of inflation was that public mood itself had shifted. The early 70s, uh, the public in the US was worried about jobs, it was worried about growth, it was worried about rising incomes, and regarded inflation as a series of one-off temporary shocks. By the end of the 70s, people had finally recognized that defeating inflation was a necessary condition of then dealing with the jobs market or dealing with uh, productivity or living standards. Whereas beginning of the 70s, inflation was regarded as an annoyance by the end of the 70s, is regarded as the public enemy number one. My fear at the moment is that people are regarding inflation as a kind of an annoyance that's not going to be around for too long, rather than something that is in danger of being persistent. This question of sentiment that you, you discuss in the book is interesting. It's kind of counterintuitive. It's one of the reasons that hyperinflation is, in a weird way, is easier to deal with yes. than just ordinary run-of-the-mill inflation because the public can get behind it. Well, hyperinflation is incredibly, incredibly destructive. When you discover that every single note and coin you've got in your pocket is absolutely worthless, and you've got no effective measure for the value of anything, then it's not surprising the vast majority of people in a society are willing to do anything to get rid of it. And that often means you know, making a central bank completely independent, making sure that the government of the day is pursuing a sustainable fiscal policy. In one sense, easy wins, but politically sometimes difficult to achieve. 
When you've got moderate inflation of the kind that you typically see in the UK or the US, society ends up polarized between winners and losers. And there are often too many winners to make it worthwhile getting rid of it, or at least to make it politically acceptable to get rid of it. So the winners include, most obviously, people who happen to be running oligopolies with pricing power, they'll do pretty well. Unionized labor will typically do pretty well in these circumstances. If you're self-employed or you, you haven't got pricing power or you're another part of the labor market which is not unionized, you may struggle in those circumstances. As a pensioner, you may well struggle because it may, you may find that you haven't got your income sufficiently indexed for future inflationary pressure. So there are always distributional income issues. And there are also distributional wealth issues as well. So inflation, generally speaking, is bad news for creditors and very good news for debtors. So amongst the debtors are, of course, governments you know, who borrow a lot. So inflation is a useful way of taxing your population without them realizing they're being taxed. It's also quite useful for people who've got mortgages, because of course, the real value of the mortgage is wiped out very, very quickly. On the other hand, if you're a saver, a creditor, particularly with cash savings, you may find that those savings are eroded extremely quickly. But the point is that with moderate rates of inflation, it may be that there's an insufficiency of people who are really hurt by it. But people can at the same time see the direct costs of a recession, which is obviously fearful. So you try to prevent the recession from happening. But effectively, all you end up doing is accommodating more in the way of inflation, and the inflation begins to corrode levels of trust in society. So at the beginning of the 70s, you can see why a lot of policymakers said, don't worry about inflation, let's focus on unemployment. By the end of the 70s, you can see why there have been this really quite significant shift saying, well, we've got to deal with inflation because otherwise we can't deal with unemployment. Just to return to the kind of current context and what the Bank of England's doing, We've been through more than a decade, really, of the monetary expansion that you mentioned, quantitative easing. And you say in the book, QE should be jettisoned. Do you think that QE has had its time? Or is there any possibility that it could rear its head again? Because it is this very convenient way for governments to use monetary policy to kind of bail themselves out. It is. So first of all, I think QE was absolutely vital at the time. I, I know a lot of people criticise QE. But you've got to bear in mind that at the beginning of the global financial crisis, a lot of the conditions were similar to the Great Depression of the 1930s. You know, if you just cut rates to zero and said, there's nothing more we can do, then I think that would have led to you know, possible panic, you know, economic collapse. So QE, I think, helped to prevent that. The problem with QE, though, was that it was designed to be an emergency measure. You, know, you do it for a bit and then get rid of it. It wasn't got rid of. It persisted for, for a number of years. And I think the policymakers, in one sense, got confused. They, they looked at the economies and said, well, inflation's low and growth is low, therefore we have to have more monetary stimulus. And that's really QE in those circumstances. But actually, I think a lot of the problem was much more on the supply side. It was productivity issues. It was those kinds of issues that were explaining or accounting for the absence of decent economic growth. So the idea that monetary policy could solve that, I think, was frankly mistaken. But the problem, though, with QE is that if you continue with it, first of all, it does make it easier for governments to you know, effectively add more and more to levels of government debt without having to worry about it. They're not worried about the bond market vigilantes because the bond market vigilantes have been nationalized through QE effectively. But actually, I think in, in current circumstances, the other worrying feature of QE was that you know, bond markets serve a role. I mean, governments don't always like them because you know, bond markets can penalize governments, but they serve a role as like a sort of early warning system that if you've got the beginnings of an inflation problem, the bond market is one of the places you turn to first to see if those worries are being reflected in higher bond yields. But if you've got QE operating at the same time, the chances are the bond yields won't go up very much because 
everyone knows that the central bank is still in the business of buying up government debt. So it's a bit like sort of having a a radar system when you're anticipating an enemy bombing raid and you decide to turn the radar system off because you've basically taken the view there's just no possibility of an enemy bombing raid. And then the next day you discover there was an enemy bombing raid. So, you know, QE in one sense is turning off the inflation radar because you think the inflation is never going to return. And when it does return, you're very late to spot it. I mean, that's something, again, that features a lot in the book is this, the lack of a time machine. Perfectly reasonable explanation for why central banks steered away from intermediate targets, intermediate targets being things like money supply and the exchange rate, because it turned out that controlling the intermediate target didn't necessarily guarantee you could control inflation, which is what you were ultimately trying to do. So inflation targeting was effectively a mechanism whereby you jettisoned the intermediate targets like money supply and exchange rates and and actually looked directly at inflation itself. Now, for a while, you had things called Taylor rules named after John Taylor, the American economist which were effectively saying that you would decide on the level of interest rates today based effectively on the forecast of future inflation alongside the extent to which current inflation was missing the inflation target. So this is the forward-looking aspect and the backward-looking aspect. But in time, people began to think, well, inflation is so noisy in the short term that we shouldn't be basing policy at all on what's happening in terms of current inflation misses. We'll simply work out where interest rates should be today based on our forecast of inflation in two years' time. Central banks have a target of 2% for inflation. They're not in the business of forecasting policy error. So in two years' time, they always forecast inflation is going to be at 2%, which in turn means that if you actually are in the face of a major regime shift in terms of inflation, you're going to miss it because your time machine is built on the experience of, say, the last 20 years doesn't incorporate in any way the kinds of regime changes that we've seen, which have led to either higher or lower inflation. And if you can't incorporate those, then again, you're going to have a time machine, which is going to take you to the wrong place. If it takes you to the wrong place, that in turn means that your policy today may itself prove to be wrong. Just to finish off, I mean, we could talk about this till the cows come home. There's so many different aspects. I want to get back to that decision-making process at the central bank. Do you think that there is too much group think or perhaps the same sorts of people with a similar outlook getting together to make these decisions? And how might we combat that? So I, I do argue in the book that if you look at the Bank of England, the MPC and so on, there's an awful lot of influence on Her Majesty's Treasury for good or bad. And of course, the idea was that the Bank of England would be separate from HMT, but um, HMT in one sense has come back with a vengeance because... Yeah, the four deputy governors were all at the Treasury at some point in the past. And of course, the Treasury is the institution that's responsible for appointing the external members of the MPC. So there is, I think, a danger of groupthink. And I think also you could say that certainly in the last few years, there was a lack of discord or disagreement on the MPC. And yet I think that that kind of disagreement can be actually rather useful because it illustrates that certain moments in time that there are tremendous uncertainties and it's a valuable debate to be had to say that there are differences. Now, to be fair, this year, there's been more of a debate because it's clearer than it has been for a long time that there are hawks and doves on the MPC. So there has been some progress made over the course of the last few months. But I still think that they could do with someone who has a rich knowledge of economic history on the MPC. I'm not putting myself forward, um, and people might dispute whether I have got a rich knowledge of economic history. I think that sometimes you, know, you have to be open-minded. And what is striking, if you look at the speeches that MPC members were making in 2020 and 2021, 
So this is a time when inflation had bottomed out, was moving ahead. Almost all the speeches are about the risks of deflation. There's hardly anything said about the possibility that inflation could be a consequence of the pandemic. Even though now, in hindsight, oh, yes, we know it's about supply chains and supply blockages of one kind or another. It all seems so obvious now, but at the time, that was not the preference that people had. And that worries me, is the the fact that you've got a, a range of possible outcomes, and yet there was a convergence on the particular view, even though we were living in the world that almost by definition was highly uncertain. Mm, and high uncertainty is, if anything, the kind of motif of, uh, of your book. Stephen, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Stephen's book, We Need to Talk About Inflation, 14 Urgent Lessons from the Last 2,000 Years, is out very soon. So do keep an eye out. Do buy that. I could not recommend it more highly. It's a very kind of lucid and eloquently written expose of the problem of inflation. Thank you all at home as ever for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do share with, uh, leave a review on Acast or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, or just share the good news by good old fashioned word of mouth. Do tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast. Hey, Ohio, have you heard the buzz? Slinger's Signature Cocktails are the new go-to to go. Slinger's are convenient, canned, cocktail-inspired flavored beverages that bring you delicious flavors like Bahama Mama, Peach Screwdriver, and Pineapple Punch with 8% ABV. They pack a punch at a price you can't beat. No time to make fancy cocktails? Don't want to break the bank on a night out? Slingers has you covered. Blast your taste buds, not your wallet. Grab Slingers today. American Fermentation Company, Boston, Massachusetts. Please drink responsibly. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.